It's 1606 in the Italian peninsula, and humanity has officially reawakened from its thousand-year slumber. Don't believe us? Don't take our word for it. Feel it in the air yourself. Far from the cold, anti-intellectual barbarism of the Middle Ages, Renaissance euphoria is contagious, and artists, for the first time in centuries, are mad to dream, mad to learn, but mostly mad to create. Michelangelo, da Vinci, Vivaldi, Galileo, they see the last millennium for what it was, a wasteland of darkness, dehumanization, and destruction. It makes this moment, the age they've entered, all the more meaningful, because now it's their time, and they dare to do what God has instructed them to do, to make beauty, lots and lots of it. But at the same time, in a small garden in Monza of northern Italy, two unenlightened people talk in hushed tones. And we promise, absolutely nothing beautiful will come of it. A disgraced woman whispers into the familiar ear of a murderer. A murderer she loves. He listens carefully, standing close enough to feel her warmth just one more time. She hisses about another woman, a woman trying to destroy her. Of course, she makes no specific request. She doesn't need to. This is not this man's first rodeo, or whatever the Renaissance equivalent of that would be. This guy is Giovanni Paolo Asio, a bit of a Michelangelo himself, only he splatters walls red, and not with paint, if you know what I'm saying. Blood, okay, okay, we're we're talking about blood. But who is this woman who nonchalantly orders a hit with cool discretion like she's Tony Soprano's great, 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 great grandmother? She must be connected, right? Well, she certainly is. To the Pope. Yep, she's a nun. She's none other than Sister Virginia Maria of Monza. And the woman she's trying to whack? Well, her name is Sister Caterina de Meda, also a nun. The problem is this. Katerina knows about her affair with Asio, and the nun of Monza needs her dead. The crimes and scandals that will unfold at the hands of the nun of Monza and Asio will rival those of Bonnie and Clyde, and will haunt the Catholic Church for centuries. It's a scandal that combines incredible wealth, a salacious affair, half a dozen murders, and, of course, we'd be remiss if we didn't mention, an alleged supernatural smoothie made of poop. Yeah, it's gonna get weird. As you'll see, the nun of Monza, born Mariana de Leva, for all her misdeeds and insidious complicity, isn't born a criminal. So what drives her to the dark side? You've got Michelangelo, da Vinci, Vivaldi, even Galileo, creating such unspeakable beauty during this period of Renaissance. Are they only able to do so from the opportunities that the privilege of being born a man during this so-called enlightened time affords them? Is Mariana merely a victim of this lack of opportunity, shackled by 17th century sexism? Or is it something more? All we know for now is that the nun of Monza needs Sister Caterina de Meda dead. History consists of heroes and villains and I suppose everything in between. But it's usually the villains who are the most interesting. Their flaws, their quirks, the voids in their hearts that force them to do the unthinkable. These are the characters that fascinate us. That pull us in. That compel us to watch and don't let us look away. 
these are the characters that we're all about. You've heard of Al Capone, but what about George Remus, whose bootlegging empire made Capone's operation look like a lemonade stand? Sure, you know Billy the Kid, but while he was robbing cattle with a pistol, James McClintock was blowing up men by the dozen with his newfangled war machines. Never heard of them? Just wait, you'll see. And it's all true. Each episode, we want you to join them on their treacherous journeys to not only learn about what makes them tick, but more importantly, feel the times that created them. From the creators of Myths and Legends and from cast media, this is Scoundrel, history's forgotten villains. We're Jason and Carissa Weiser. Join with us every episode as we explore dark, quirky, and bizarre history that you might not have heard before, but really should. So, where to start? How about nine years earlier? Perfect. It's 1597, and Mariana de Leva, a.k.a. the nun of Monza, is 22 years old. Having been a sister of the cloth since she was 13 years old, she knows her way around this North Italian convent like the back of her hand, especially the garden, where she often comes to find peace. But today, as she sits tending her flowers, that peace just isn't coming. You see, Mariana's love of gardening is special to her. The trees, the flowers, the soil, they all spark joy in her quiet life. A joy that is protected and shielded. A joy that cannot be taken away by a man. A joy that cannot be stolen away by her father. Mariana de Leva y Marino was born on December 4th, 1575 in Milan, Italy. Her mother, Virginia, died just a year after she was born, thrusting her into a storm that would follow her for the rest of her life. You see, Mariana's late mother came from incredible wealth and prestige. We're talking fur coats and ancestors depicted in oil paintings rich. The family descended from Spanish nobility, who established Madrid's control of southern Italy. And Virginia's father, Mariana's grandfather, was one of the wealthiest men in Milan. With family like this, Mariana's mother left behind a fortune. She also left behind a number of people who laid claim to that fortune. First, our dear Mariana. Second, Mariana's three half-siblings from her mother's previous marriage. And a critical third, Mariana's father, an Italian military commander named Martino de Leva, a man who had robbed Mariana blind and imprisoned her in these convent walls. At that time, European nobles had simple objectives. Protect the family name, increase wealth, and become even more powerful. Mariana's father, the commander, was no different. And as a young child, Mariana couldn't offer much help in achieving those goals. Her money, on the other hand, could. Teenage years can be awkward, but for Mariana, this chapter seemed to be going all right. At 13, she began to entertain noble suitors for marriage, which was, I guess, sort of like the 16th century version of Tinder. Unfortunately, Mariana wasn't the only person concerned about marital bliss. Daddy dearest Commander Martino already had a new wife, and he was ready to settle affairs in Milan so that he could start the respectable family he needed to promote his lineage. Martino saw his daughter's marital flirtations unfold. The thought of another man in her life vying for his riches was unacceptable. He immediately drafted out new terms for Mariana's inheritance. The first condition was a doozy. Mariana had to enter a convent. But the second condition went even further. Mariana would only receive her inheritance once she officially became a nun. We weren't there, 
But we can promise you this, Mariana was absolutely devastated. Here she was, a teenage girl among multiple suitors, like a contestant on a Renaissance version of the show, The Bachelorette, in Milan of all places, the economic and political center of Europe. It probably felt like a dream come true. And yet that dream ended, all because a man she barely knew swooped in and told her that she had to become a nun just to get a portion of the money that her dead mother left to her. To add insult to injury, Mariana's absentee father insisted that she join a monastery in his own fiefdom, the northern city of Monza. Mariana did as she was told and kept up her end of the bargain. She even took the name Sister Virginia Maria, the name of the mother that she never knew. It wasn't all that she'd envisioned for herself, but at least she'd inherit some of her birthright. Right? Nope. Not a cent. But right now, none of those frustrations from the past matter. Mariana doesn't need money. She has her gardening. She starts muttering to herself as she presses the seeds harder and harder into the ground. I mean, what choice does she have anyway, she says. She's a woman living in 16th century Italy. Men like her father can do whatever they want, whenever they want. The cornet in her head starts to dampen from her rage. She starts hammering the seeds now with her fists as she smashes them in a blind fury. I mean, he's taken her birthright, she screams. What's she supposed to do? Lay down for the rest of her life, a prisoner in this godforsaken convent jail cell? What other option does a young Renaissance girl like her have? Mariana looks up and finally notices the other sisters staring at her. She wipes her brow, fixes her headdress in shame, and scurries off to her chamber. Hopefully none of her pupils saw her outburst. It's a quiet night in northern Italy, and Mariana decompresses in her chambers, reading a book. Suddenly, she hears a noise coming from the tree outside. The noise is too slow and heavy to be an animal, so she waits in silence to see what it is. At just the right moment, Mariana peeks through the window and sees... Down the length of the convent, high in a tree, the monastery's neighbor? She stares harder. Yeah, it's that wealthy young count, uh, Giovanni Paolo Osio. What Mariana doesn't know is that Giovanni is going to change her life and church history forever. For now, all she knows is that Giovanni is up to something suspicious. But he hasn't seen her watching. And so she continues watching as Giovanni's face lights up. He's perched high on an outstretched limb, staring at a shuttered window. Just before he loses his balance, a pair of arms and a soft giggle emerge from the window and pull Giovanni inside for the night. In her own room, Mariana is shocked and horrified by Giovanni's suave pursuits. After all, A monastery is where people send their daughters to avoid scandal, not have it climb through the window and into their beds. He's made a big mistake, and something must be done. The following night, lovesick Romeo, that is, Giovanni, scales the tree again. Only this time, when the shutters open, he finds a ticked-off Mariana glaring back at him. She informs Giovanni that the convent will not tolerate his behavior, and that he is banned for life. He'll have to find other people to mess around with. However, like Mariana's father, Giovanni is a rich nobleman 
with all the entitlement and ego expected of his station. He doesn't run in shame. Instead, he grows cold and angry. He asks Mariana to confirm her name. She does so, and he leaves. Why did Mariana's name matter? Well, because Giovanni needs to know who is going to pay for this whole mess. His little rendezvous schedule with students from the convent didn't happen overnight. Uh, Well, it did. The point is, Giovanni has the perfect thing going. Welcoming girls living next door and a stepladder tree rooted in just the right place. He doesn't want to lose any of this. But since Mariana is getting in the way of his fun, somebody is going to pay. And by pay, we mean die. Days after Mariana confronts Giovanni at the window, the man who oversees her father's estate is found stabbed to death. Some sources say it was the family's accountant, others that the victim played a bigger role in the estate. Either way, the message from Giovanni is clear. You mess with me, I'll make you pay. The murder remains unsolved, but that doesn't mean Mariana doesn't have a suspect in mind. She's unimpressed by Giovanni's bizarre romantic games, and she wants justice. Now, remember that Mariana's life has had lots of downs and downs at this point. Her mother died when she was still a baby. Her own father ensured that she never saw any of what little portion of her inheritance he decided she could have on paper. But there's always a silver lining. And Mariana's silver lining is that life in the convent has given her some degree of power. Limited power, but it's something. Finally. So, while Mariana won't be attending any father-daughter dances, a slight against her family is still a slight against her. When Giovanni kills the commander's estate manager, he also paints a target on his back. And these days, Mariana is a pretty good shot. And her weapon of choice? Power. Her education, demeanor, and reputation for good insight have given her a little influence in Monza. At 22 years of age, Mariana cooperates with the authorities, and the call goes out for Giovanni's arrest. Giovanni, of course, has known he's a potential suspect all along, so he remains unperturbed and brazenly returns to the leafy scene of the crime. There he tries to talk Mariana out of pressing charges against him. He's in a precarious position physically, up in a tree, and legally, but how appropriate to have this conversation in the very tree where she first laid eyes on him. Giovanni isn't too smart, but he sure is bold. Naturally, Mariana is unimpressed. She's finally cobbled together enough power to punish an entitled nobleman, and she isn't about to back down. You don't have to be Freud, or at the very least even Fraser, to realize that Mariana sees Giovanni as a spitting image of her father. And if she can never punish her old man for his transgressions against her, maybe she can at least try to keep men exactly like him accountable to the law. Instead of bargaining, Mariana has Giovanni arrested. Giovanni is then banned from Monza for the year. It's a huge win for Mariana and women everywhere, at least for a few hours. Like any good nobleman, Giovanni has other friends at the monastery, including the mother superior. Giovanni's buddies force Mariana to withdraw charges. The humiliation doesn't stop there. Giovanni moves right back into his home next to the monastery and brags about his victory around town. This man doesn't just return to the scene of the crime. He sleeps right next door to it. 
But Mariana is no stranger to collusion or strange bedfellows. True, the pardon and Giovanni's parading around town must have been hard to watch. Her crumbs of power that she's been able to scrape together have just been thrashed by a Renaissance trust fund kid whose title and attitude are eerily similar to her father's. Mariana keeps her eyes on the devious count. Who knows what he would do next? She must have hated him, right? Giovanni has to have been a daily reminder of Mariana's lack of power during that time. He's yet another over-controlling man who gets his way despite clearly being in the wrong. It makes you wonder. Surely she must have fantasized about his eventual demise, right? Well, not quite. See, Giovanni is a charmer, and he's around Mariana's age. He's also a nobleman, just like the boys who once sought Mariana's hand in marriage before she was hidden away in a monastery. And perhaps most importantly, Giovanni is right next door. However obnoxious and entitled he is, Giovanni is the only connection Mariana has to the life she initially wanted. And again, without calling Dr. Freud, this kind of feels like Daddy Issues 101, right? Or an if-you-can't-beat-him-join-him kind of situation. Either way, the nun and the alleged murderer begin exchanging love letters. In classic style, Mariana lowers her letters from her window on a rope and pulls Giovanni's back up. In 1599, when Mariana is 24 and Giovanni is 28, the couple decides to take their relationship to the next level. Mariana agrees to meet Giovanni at the door of the convent. The door conversation must have been good because on Christmas 1599, Mariana sneaks Giovanni into the convent and the couple spends their first night together. Now, you might be asking yourself how a highly visible nun and an almost convict went around having a secret relationship. The answer is simple. With help. Four other sisters and a priest friend of Giovanni facilitate the couple's hidden romance. A blacksmith even crafts duplicates of the monastery keys to help Giovanni come and go. Teeth brushing won't become common for another century, but Giovanni definitely has a toothbrush at her bathroom sink. Or maybe under it, you know, hidden in the back. Still, the couple's brazenness doesn't go unnoticed. Concerned neighbors eventually tell the sister superior that they've seen Giovanni's little love trips. But Giovanni is no fool. He understands the politics of the day and donates large sums of money to the monastery. He's also a count entertaining a relationship with a nun who, however disenfranchised, still comes from a wealthy, powerful family. The sister superior ignores the neighbor's complaints. It's safer and more profitable to let the affair happen. The lovebirds go about their business, unbothered for about two years. But then, in 1602, a very predictable crisis emerges. Mariana is pregnant. The couple clumsily tries to hide the pregnancy before tragedy strikes. Mariana gives birth to a stillborn child. She is heartbroken. More than that, she believes that the death is a sign of God's displeasure with her. Desperate to avoid further punishment, Mariana cuts off all contact with Giovanni. The combination of a lost baby and a lost love crushes Mariana. She had finally found respite from the loneliness she's always known, and it feels like God is punishing her for it. One day, as Mariana stands before the well in the convent's garden, 
she contemplates throwing herself in. How else could she find refuge from a twice-broken heart? But instead of jumping to a dark, watery death, Mariana looks up, right into the face of the Virgin Mary. Well, it's a painting of the Virgin Mary, but that painting is enough. And Mariana decides that she wants to live. She's still deeply wounded, of course. That hasn't changed. And she's deeply in love. But now she's thinking about it all in a new way. Mariana concludes that Giovanni must have cast a spell on her. It sounds ridiculous, but remember that this is the early 1600s, and Mariana is a nun enamored with a murderer. Witchcraft probably seemed like the best explanation. So how is Mariana to break the spell? As luck would have it, flushable toilets do not yet exist. In perhaps the most bizarre and disgusting part of this tale, Mariana reportedly acquires Giovanni's fecal matter, dries it out, and then makes a shake out of it with onions and liver. (laughs) We're not kidding. No, we wish we were. In a feat of unrivaled determination, Mariana drinks the caca colada three times a day. She feels like she's lost control of her feelings and she wants it back. Imagine for a second, having been thrown around your whole life like a ragdoll, having so little self-determination that the only way you think you can regain any semblance of control is by drinking a duty daiquiri. This is some dark stuff. As predicted, there are certain realities that the poop potion just can't change. Giovanni is more than Mariana's lover. He's the closest thing to the married, noble life that was taken from her. Their relationship was also the only major decision she'd been able to make on her own. In that way, Giovanni was the intimacy and the agency that Mariana never had. And that's not something you give up. Not easily, anyway. The couple reunites within a few months. Mariana becomes pregnant again in 1603. The following year, at the age of 29, she gives birth to a bouncing baby girl named Alma. Throughout the pregnancy, other nuns tell the nosy outsiders that Mariana's growing abdomen is a result of a disease and nothing more. The infant is secreted away to her father, meaning she is sent next door immediately after being born. Giovanni claims the girl came from another affair. And Mariana makes no claim to the child. She reportedly doesn't even like the girl. Mariana is about to disappear like her father, who she hasn't seen since she was a teen. But she's torn. This is her child. And so she makes baby clothes and visits whenever the neighbor's rubbernecks are facing elsewhere. The inherent complications of having a love child, however, aren't the only reasons for Mariana's limited role in her daughter's life. Postpartum changes are real, and Mariana has a difficult time. She feels sick almost nightly. So often, she frequently isn't well enough to visit. So between illness, spotty visitations, and ever-growing interest from the neighbors, the relationship between Giovanni and Mariana finally buckles. They break up. For real this time. Now older, wiser, and sicker than in past breakups, Mariana is desperate to put the affair behind her. She throws herself into monastery life. But secrets never stay buried. Even during a time before screenshots of DMs, rumors about the affair continue to spread. One pair of hungry ears belongs to Caterina de Meda, you know, the nun we mentioned in the beginning. Unlike the beloved Mariana, the convent rejects Caterina's bid to become a nun, 
And Katerina is furious. So much so that she threatens to expose everything. The affair. The monastery's role in covering it up. Everything. Exposure would be terrible for Mariana. Clergy is supposed to report sexual misdeeds, not commit them. At best, Mariana can lose her powerful position as vicar within the monastery. At worst, she will be subject to any number of humiliating and or painful punishments. Either way, life as she knows it will be over. So Mariana has a choice to make. She can do nothing. Let Katerina rat her out to the church and wait for unfamiliar men in luxurious robes to hand down her punishment. Or she can take action and keep the lay sister quiet for good. Mariana doesn't seem to struggle with her decision. At this point in her life, she's had power stripped from her multiple times. First, it was her siblings and her father deciding her inheritance. Then her father chose her profession and where she would live. Even Giovanni reversed her decision to sentence him after they first met. So this time, Mariana is going to take control for the first time in her life. And she's going to be smart about it, too. You see, Mariana has learned from years of sneaking around, suffering betrayal, and rising up the ranks of the monastery. She knows better than to handle the dirty work herself. She calls an old friend, and you won't believe who it is. Giovanni. Yeah, I thought that chapter was over, too. It is different this time. Different skills, anyway. That's true. Mariana tells Giovanni about Katerina's spiteful plan, about how she wants to air all their dirty laundry. Giovanni listens intently, and he chooses the solution that Mariana knows would come to him naturally. When night falls, Giovanni accosts Katerina and demands that she keep her mouth shut. She refuses. With a shot to the head, she is silenced forever. Giovanni hides Katerina's body in the chicken coop and buries her the next morning. Facilitating Katerina's death signals a vicious shift in Mariana. She doesn't mourn her fallen sister. Instead, Mariana encourages a rumor that Katerina fled in shame after failing to become a nun. Digging even further into the Cersei Lannister playbook, Mariana threatens everyone who may know the truth. No one wants to cross the woman with a homicidal nobleman in her back pocket so they keep quiet. Oddly enough, Mariana's machinations probably would have worked had it not been for Giovanni. The Count isn't satisfied with threats. He's getting on in age and needs to do all the things expected of him. Marry well, watch his staff rear the children, and pass on the family name. Scandal could derail his plans. He isn't looking to risk that, especially not when he's already gotten away with two murders and an affair. Giovanni's feeling like Monza's Teflon Don, and Teflon Don doesn't just make threats. He makes people disappear. First, Giovanni goes to the blacksmith who fashioned duplicate keys for the affair. The blacksmith has apparently been talking around town. Giovanni shoots and kills the blacksmith. Later, Mariana sits in her chambers, reading. She hears a sound and looks up. Giovanni climbs through the window. In slow motion, his bloody clothes ripple around his body. She watches in awe as he locks eyes with her. Suddenly, she breaks into tears, not from sadness or fear or distress, but from relief. This is the nicest thing anyone has ever done for her. Quite frankly, 
it borders on the only thing anyone has really done for her. And even drenched in morbidity, someone as neglected as Mariana can't help but feel touched. She runs to her man in a loving embrace, blood staining the front of her robe. She doesn't care. Maybe everything is going to be okay after all. The only issue is, with three murders under his belt, something has awakened in Giovanni. Call it paranoia, call it bloodlust, call it whatever you want. But the bottom line is, more people know about their affair. More people need to die. Giovanni moves on to his next victim, a pharmacist, who is an old friend of Mariana's family and often looked after their daughter. Fortunately for the pharmacist, he's a quick study. So he runs at the sight of Giovanni approaching. The pharmacist escapes and lives, for the time being, at least. Now, there's nothing to suggest that Mariana planned Giovanni's snowball of murders, but she doesn't exactly beg him to stop, either. In fact, Mariana knows of Giovanni's plans and yet does nothing at all. That is, until he takes it a bit too far. Giovanni, who apparently has ample bullets and time, but no sense of loyalty, plans to kill a priest who helped with the affair in its early days. This is where Mariana finally steps in. But why? Why does Mariana intervene to save the priest? Is it a crisis of conscience? Is it compassion for someone who shares her devotion to God? No, not even close. It seems Giovanni's murders, as romantic as they were, have started drawing a lot of attention, and it isn't going away. Mariana doesn't have a convenient explanation for the blacksmith's disappearance, like she does for Katerina. And the pharmacist's loved ones must have heard about his desperate scramble away from death. Yes, the Monza town folk have begun to whisper. So now the last thing Mariana needs is for a dead priest to further invigorate the rumor mill. Because rumors about Giovanni inevitably lead to rumors about Mariana and their years of nighttime rendezvous. For what must have been the first time in his life, Giovanni takes some good advice and decides not to murder the priest. But the damage is already done. Unbeknownst to Giovanni or Mariana, the governor of Milan orders a secret investigation into the murders of Caterina and the blacksmith. It doesn't take long for the governor to order Giovanni's arrest and imprison him. Now, this should be the point where Mariana turns on Giovanni when she professes to the world that he bewitched her and took advantage of her good nature and delicate sensibilities. But no, cold and calculating as she's become, Mariana is still young and in love. She stands by her man, or, well, her ex-man. She writes impassioned letters to the church, proclaiming Giovanni's innocence and decrying his imprisonment. Mariana has had years of seemingly faithful service to the church, so she probably thinks her letters will make all the difference. And they do, just in the worst possible way. The church correctly sees Mariana's letters as evidence of a relationship between the two of them. It promptly begins to investigate the convent, its toxic culture, and Mariana. At this point, Giovanni knows he's out of luck. As punishment looms and whispers spread, Giovanni enlists the help of several nuns to escape from the castle where he's being held. Freedom tastes good. And at this point, Giovanni can do what most people would do, abscond in the night, never to be seen again. But Giovanni isn't most people. 
He's a count with an ego and a vendetta. He still believes that he can tie up all the loose ends and moonwalk right out of this whole mess completely unscathed. So instead of running away, Giovanni tracks down the escaped pharmacist and shoots him dead. He then turns his sights on the priest. Oh, but then he remembers Mariana's protestations. Well, fine. He'll go light on the priest. Instead of murdering the man of God, Giovanni plants the fresh murder weapon at the priest's home. Yeah, real bastion of restraint, that Giovanni. Shockingly, the fresh murder and framing doesn't help anyone. At this point, all of Monza knows about the sordid affair and the crimes that surround it. Everything is a loose end. The entire ordeal has come undone. And the church will not tolerate whispers of sin right under its nose. The archbishop orders Mariana's arrest. Now, this order must have seemed deeply unjust to Mariana. She isn't the one who killed multiple people. And yet, remember, Mariana knowingly sent her rabid nobleman after the mouthy Katerina. And she vocally supported Giovanni after his crimes, to the point that other nuns, who would have known and possibly even feared her, chose to help him escape imprisonment. Mariana never pulls a single trigger. But yet again, neither does Charles Manson. Instead, she alternates between pulling strings and playing a convincing supporting role. Only, she doesn't see it that way. Mariana is incensed by the threat of being punished for simply trying to live a life on her own terms. And she isn't going down without a fight. When authorities arrive, Mariana fights tooth and nail and blade. She picks up a sword and threatens her captors. She proclaims that she never wanted to be a nun at all. She was unjustly forced into the convent as a mere child. What she really wanted was to marry and to be with Giovanni. The men sent to arrest her barely even listen. They push forward. At that moment, Mariana descends into panic. This cannot be happening. She never gets to live the way she wants. Once again, her desperate attempt to shoehorn her life into something desirable is crashing down on top of her. And this time, she's about to lose everything. Her freedom, Giovanni, her power, all of it. As the men encircle her, an inch forward, she sees something behind them, more like someone. It's a young Mariana. She's helpless. Mariana locks eyes with the disheartened girl. No. Mariana clenches her teeth. She refuses to ever be that helpless little girl ever again. Mariana slams her head against the wall. Once, twice, again and again and again. Maybe she wants to die. Maybe she just wants the thoughts to stop. Either way, she finds zero sympathy with the officials from the Catholic Church. They take the opportunity to subdue her and snatch her into custody to await trial. Does Giovanni, who has just escaped his own imprisonment, use his skills to bust his former lover out of nun jail? No, of course not. She isn't the one facing the death penalty. So, while Mariana suffers alone, Giovanni murders both of the nuns who helped him escape. Committed to his own survival, Giovanni learns that his attempt to frame the priest failed miserably and probably only served to further anger the church. Not only is the count charged with five murders and sentenced in absentia to the gallows, but his assets are confiscated and the church offers a bounty for his capture, dead or alive. They are not messing around. 
No level of charming, sneaking, or violence can save Giovanni. Historical records vary, but it seems he is either killed in the basement of his friend's palace in Milan or found and beheaded in Monza. He must have been shocked when he was caught because he clearly thinks he can get away with anything. But after years of complicity and scandal, the church is eager to restore its image. And I guess execution is a great way to show that you aren't going to be complicit anymore. But the church doesn't stop there. In the course of its lengthy investigation, it interrogates and tortures everyone who is remotely close to the affair. Even the doorman to the monastery is held and encouraged to tell all. And then there's Mariana. She isn't killed like Giovanni, but the church makes sure she suffers publicly. Her trial drags on for almost a year. She is ruthlessly interrogated and tortured, information that surely makes its way to the curious residents of Monza. In the end, Mariana is convicted of, quote, many grievous, outrageous, and atrocious offenses. She is sentenced to imprisonment in a single room within the convent for 13 years. The minimum age to enter a convent is 12. On the day of her release, Mariana could have met new residents who weren't even born when her sentence began. It's a long time in isolation, and Mariana spends it reading and praying. She repents of her crimes and swears that she is a changed woman. The Cardinal and Archbishop of Milan agree. Upon her release, Mariana is allowed to continue living a quiet life at the convent. She dies in 1650 at the age of 75. It would be easy to view Mariana's story as a case of love gone wrong. She met the wrong man, adored him, and was bound to him as he dragged her even further into the muck. But it's not quite that simple. Giovanni didn't force Mariana into a relationship, nor did he force her to tell him about Katerina. Or to vouch for him after his arrest. Right. Mariana made those choices as she sought out and clung to Giovanni. So maybe this is a story about more than love. Maybe this is a story about just how toxic deprivation can be. As a girl, Mariana was deprived of parental love. She was deprived of a guardian. She was deprived of the very wealth that she could have used to seek out a semblance of independence. And when you think about Mariana's story through this lens of deprivation, you can see why she was so devoted to Giovanni. He was her only guardian, her only advocate, a source of emotional intimacy. He was a means to no longer feeling alone. Which leads us to another thing that Mariana was deprived of, agency. Dating Giovanni was the only major decision that Mariana got to make for herself. Everything else, her job, the city she lived in, even the monastery she was attached to, was chosen for her. So think about it. You're a cooped up 20-something who's been shuffled around and swindled since you were a year old. You have one person, just one, who you chose to have in your life and who gives you a level of closeness and security that others do not. And all this is happening during a time when rampant misogyny limits your ability to build a life for yourself. It's a tough situation. So let's go back to our earlier question. Why would a nun make herself complicit in multiple criminal conspiracies? The answer is simple. She was desperate. Mariana was fighting for a sliver of life. With every whisper, every scheme, every permissive shrug at Giovanni, Mariana was clinging to the section of her life that felt like something she truly wanted. 
Yeah, she was underhanded, selfish, sometimes even malicious, but so was everyone else she'd ever known. It was a pattern life had taught her to expect. So wherever you are, take a moment. Think about the people you have. Appreciate the family, the friends, yeah, even the annoying ones. And think about the decisions we're able to make for ourselves, the good and the bad. Chances are you enjoy an incredible but easy-to-ignore freedom that Mariana and countless other women never had, even during a time as enlightened as the Renaissance. Scoundrel, History's Forgotten Villains is executive produced by Jason and Carissa Weiser and Colin Thompson. Today's episode was written by Clarence Moore. It's produced by DJ Lubell and edited and sound designed by Anton Doty. Scoundrel, History's Forgotten Villains is a cast original podcast.